The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelations chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Plus is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, am, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they might have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates." Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and adulterers, and everyone else who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are at the end of the book of Revelation. For the last four and a half months, we've been going chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation, uh, and this is quite the accomplishment. Uh, At the the beginning of this sermon series, I don't know if I've ever felt so overwhelmed before, right, to pick up what is probably the most confusing book of the Bible and say, God, help us understand this. Let us us." know who you are, let us know what you've done for us in a way uh, that, that, that just stirs worship up inside of us. And, and so in a sense, this is a real accomplishment to come to the end of this sermon series, but the real accomplishment has been what God has been doing through this time in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've felt it, but little by little, God has been shifting the church culture here at Sacred City Church. He's, we've been reformed and being reform, reforming and being reformed according to the word of God. And in a sense, we've become an apocalyptic church. Now, I mean that in a good way. Now, you typically hear apocalyptic, you're thinking the end of the world. People are like, end of the world and Christians, for some reason, we automatically start thinking about uh, storing up warehouses full of canned food and building bunkers, like we're, we're going to weather the, the end of the world together. But that's not what I'm talking about as being an apocalyptic church. God has been teaching us 
at this church how to live right now with the end in mind. That's what Revelation has been about. Jesus gives John, the apostle, who introduces himself here in chapter 22, uh, a vision, a revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ of, of what will happen in the last times. And as John takes this revelation and passes it on to the church, there are seven specific churches that he identifies at the beginning of the book, but also to our church now, he is doing something. He, he has the intentions not to make us a bunch of weirdos who are building bunkers, but to fill us with hope, to fill us with courage, to encourage us to be faithful until the end. He's given us new eyes to see the broken world that we currently occupy while giving us a vision, a taste of what the new heavens and new earth will be like when Jesus comes and restores the entire cosmos. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you know that there's been a lot going on through the book of Revelation. Some of it's been pretty confusing. Um, we started out talking about the seven seals on the scroll that have to be opened and segues into the seven trumpets that are blown to signify God's judgment and then the seven bulls of wrath. There's been a story of a, of a nasty dragon in pursuit of a, a, a pregnant woman. There's been tales about uh, beasts and a, a, a terrifying harlot. There's been the use of numbers and symbols and signs, and all of this has been intertwined with a myriad of allusions to the Old Testament and the prophecies where God was telling his people thousands of years before John started writing what would happen one day when he delivered all of his promises. And so there's a real sense where revelation is very tricky. And as you come to the end of the book of Revelation, there's also a lot going on here. John doesn't really give us a ton of new information. There's a little bit. He gives us some practical instruction in verse 18 and 19 that's pretty new. He's saying, you know, there's a caution, there's a woe for people who either add or subtract the words from this prophecy but most of what's going on here at the end of Revelation 22 is John tying up the thematic loose ends that he's been playing with as if they were strings on a guitar throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation. And so when we look at these last 20 so verses, it seems like John is all over the place here as well. But, but he's not, he's, he doesn't have... ADD here. He, he's actually being very unintentional what he's doing, like, like a, a composer who writes a, a finale of a well-written symphony. He's, he's picking up all the motifs, all of the musical gestures that he used throughout the book of Revelation, and he's giving it its last hurrah, the final nod at all of these things. We see him talking about Jesus, who is this, this morning star, Right, that goes back to Revelation 21 and 22 where we're told in the new heavens, new earth, we don't need the sun because Jesus is shining brightly. He goes back and he talks about how these words are trustworthy and true. That's how he starts out this prophecy. 
He talks about the recompense, being paid back for all of the evil that we have suffered. He says, I am the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning. Then it's Jesus who is and who was and who is yet to come. And instead of trying to follow all of these little rabbit trails that John takes us on as he closes the book of the Bible, uh, the the final book of the book of the Bible, I I want to close our time in the book of Revelation with one concentrated idea so that when somebody comes up to you and tries to convince you, oh, well, the book of Revelation is about the end of the world, you can look at them and say, well, actually, no, that's not what Revelation is about. Do you realize that? Like, Revelation isn't about the end of the world. Now, sure, it provides an apocalyptic vision of what the end of the world will be like and gives symbols and signs as what that is. But that's not the point. That's not the purpose of Revelation. Now, think of, think of what it means to be the point of something. Think of, think of the point of a needle or a skewer. We've got some, some nice days of weather coming up here, and I'm thinking about skewers and barbecuing and being out in the sun. That's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about. Think, of, think for a moment of a needle or a skewer. The, the tip of the needle or the skewer is the most focused and concentrated part of that object. It's the part that pioneers the way for the rest of that object, right? It's the point that penetrates and the rest of it follows behind. Now, the point of revelation is like the point of the rest of the entirety of Scripture. The point of revelation is to worship God. That's it. That's the point. It's, it's, it's God giving John a revelation so that we would know how and why and what it looks like to worship God. In fact, that's the point of Christianity. And aside from the final amen that we see at the end of chapter 2, those two words, worship God, are the most concentrated sentence in the entire book of Revelation. You can see it right there in, in verse, I think it's verse 9. John falls at the feet of this angel after hearing this this grand vision of the new heavens, new earth, and all of the things that would take place leading up to that day. And he falls in worship, and, and the angel says to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and those who keep the words of this book. And then the angel says, worship God. Now, if you remember... The book of Revelation is packed with worship, right? Go go back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation. What do you see? You see God at the center of the universe, seated on his throne. Angels and cherubim and, and creatures and the elders are worshiping God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, And then the vision shifts, and we see Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the conquering lion, 
And again, heaven erupts with worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is yet to come. And once again, as the scrolls are opened, as judgment is issued on a sinful and broken world, worship exudes from heaven. And you work your way to the middle of the book of Revelation, and what you see, it's like, where do you see worship in that? Well, actually, what we're seeing is a conflict of worship. It's a question of who deserves our worship. Is it God the beautiful, trustworthy, and true? Or is it Satan? Is it the evil one who, who lies and destroys and deceives? And there's this conflict going on in the book of Revelation of, of what should we worship? And then finally, Revelation ends with this final command, worship God. It's, it's, it's the period, it's the punctuation point on the end of Revelation. Now, this might not seem super insightful, right? Oh, worship God. Sounds like a great sermon, Pastor. It's like, duh, we're doing that. We're here to worship God right now. But you cannot read through the book of Revelation and think that when John or when the angel says worship God, think that he's talking exclusively about a Sunday worship gathering. It's, it's far more. The worship that's being called for is far more than singing songs or having, listening to a sermon for a couple hours a week. See, what, what's being said here through the book of Revelation is that our Sunday morning worship is the needle point for the rest of our life. Right, that, that is Sunday morning, what we do here through liturgy and song and coming under the word and sacrament, it's the needle point of the rest of our life. That all of our life flows behind what we do here on Sunday morning. That all of life is meant to be worship. That means that when we're at home, we're worshiping making food for the kids, or when we're at work, we're worshiping. When we're in the car, and that one's a tricky one, we're worshiping. How you eat, how you spend your money, how you recreate, that's all meant to be worship. And so as we close the book of Revelation, it provides us with insight here on what it means to be all of life worshipers. It gives us action. It gives us language. It tells us live your life as worship, but it does not leave us with this command to worship without telling us why we worship. And so here, we're just going to talk about worship for the rest of our time, what we have together. When we talk about worship, I think our, our mind naturally defaults to thinking about what we do here on Sunday mornings, right? Our, our praying, our singing, the liturgy. But when you think about what we're doing, right, as far as the actions of our worship, we really have to think about worship as getting underneath that. Like, what are we accomplishing? What are we really doing here, 
Like, why, do, why does singing matter? See, what we're doing when we come to worship God on Sunday mornings, we're acknowledging God's beauty, his goodness, and his truth. Right, we did this this morning, right? the first song, you're, you're beautiful. God, I see you. I see your face. And we don't mean that literally that somehow God's face comes out of the ceiling somehow. We, see, no, we, we, we have an idea of what God is like in creation and through redemption, that I see what you have done, God, and you, you are doing a beautiful work. God, we're, we're saying you are good that you're trustworthy and true. We're, and in, in saying this and in proclaiming these truths about God, what we're doing is we're ascribing value and worth to God accurately. We're not hyping God up. In fact, if anything, our worship is, doesn't like necessarily even get to the breadth and the depth and the width of, of what our worship ought to be. See, worship means Worthy ship. We see God as worthy and we declare and affirm his worthiness. We see his character and we praise him for it. Now, beauty, goodness, and truth are, are the foundational characteristics that human beings gravitate toward. You realize that? Like, like we're just attracted to beauty and goodness and truth. You don't have to be taught how to gravitate towards those things. Now, think of how you ended up with your spouse if you're married. Right? Are, there, are they beautiful? All the guys, you need to be, yes, right now, men, beautiful. And the ladies, you're like, eh, like inner beauty, right? Give them some inner beauty. Right? We're attracted to beauty, whether it's goodness or, or whether it's internal or external. And you ask, are they are they honest? Are they true? Are they dependable? Do they, do they demonstrate goodness? Are they kind? Are they thoughtful? Are they compassionate? Are they generous? See, these characteristics, when we see beauty and goodness and truth lined up, these characteristics offer stability in our relationships. It's, it's saying, I can count on you. Right? When those characteristics are there, I, I can trust you. Now, that's even more true with what we worship. Our affections, our, our love, our, our worship swells and crescendos for that which is good, beautiful, and true. Now, you look at that passage that I read in, in, in chapter 22, verse 8 and 9, where, where John falls down at the feet of this angel, right? And you're like, what a dummy. Like, why, why is he doing that? Well, it, it's because John is overwhelmed by the sense of goodness and beauty and truth that he has received through the entirety of the revelation. And, and he's, he's so compelled to worship that, that in that moment, he, he does worship, but he worships the wrong thing. It's, it's misguided. But thankfully, the angel stops him in verse 9. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. S slow your roll there, John. You, you don't worship me. A and listen, 
I don't doubt that this angel is a glorious and beautiful being. And the angel's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't worship me. You worship God. So in a sense, it's right that John worships. The problem is that his worship is misguided for the moment. And you see, that is what our problem tends to be as well. It's not that we don't worship. Right? It's not like we, we need to stir up some sort of worship in our heart. Everybody's worshiping. Everybody's worshiping at all times. The question is, though, what is it that you're worshiping? It's said that the human heart is like a fire hose that is cranked on full blast and stuck that way. It's always pouring out worship. So the question is not if you're worshiping, it's what are you directing your worship toward? And that is where the problem lies, is that our, our hose is often pointed in the wrong direction. Revelation 1, or not Revelation, excuse me, Romans, excuse me, Romans 1 tells us that, that our tendency, being fallen creatures, is that we tend to gravitate toward worshiping, worshiping create what's created or, or the creature rather than what is creator. Now, here is where the tension lies with us. Because what our worship is pointing at, it could be a myriad of things. It could be our, ourselves. We're just self-focused people. We could be worshiping our spouse or money or our jobs or comfort or you name it. Any of those things could easily become the target for which we point our fire hose at. But correct worship, true worship, is when our hearts are pointed at creator, that we're pointed at God. See, worship is telling God, I see your beauty and your goodness and your truth. I see your characteristics, and I'm increasingly satisfied. I'm increasingly stirred to worship you for who and what you have done. And because I see you for who you are, I trust you. I trust you with my entire life. Now, that's what we're doing here in our songs and our liturgy, through the reading of the word, through sacrament. We come and we ascribe value and worth to God. We're agreeing with the psalmist in Psalm 86 and a myriad of other scriptures that, that proclaim, there is none like you, O God. In our call to worship this morning, all of the other gods are worthless idols. Nothing is actually as beautiful and good and true as you are God. Nothing is more deserving of my allegiance, of my energy, of my resource, of my affections. God, you are my foundation. You're my fortress. You're my song. You're my hope and you're my joy. Jesus, you're my all and all. And I trust you with my whole life. 
See, that's what we're doing. We're, we're proclaiming. We're saying, yes, God, you, you are who you say you are, and we worship you. But if our worship is only words, if they're just merely words coming out of our mouth, then our worship isn't worship at all. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 when he's confronting the Pharisees, who at that time in Jesus' day and age, the Pharisees were the most at least from the external appearance, the most spiritual, worshipful people in that society. They're, they're the ones that are in the temple and, and reading scripture and praying and giving money and doing all of these things. But Jesus looks at them. And in the spirit of Isaiah 29, he says, people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so they worship in vain. Friends, that is, that is a caution to us today. That if our heart is detached from the words that we say and sing when we worship, it's not worship at all. That, that's, that's lip service. And lip service is best friends with religion. Just saying what needs to be said, Checking the boxes, you know, I'm here. What, what else do you want from me? That's, that's religion. See, Jesus looks at his people and he says, I desire their whole heart. I desire their whole, whole life. I desire worship people who worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying, I, I want worshipers who have their heart behind what they say that have a profession with integrity. The, the, the people who come to worship me on Sunday mornings, what they profess and affirm in, in, in the liturgy and what they sing about in songs on Sunday mornings would also be true on Friday nights. Jesus is after the heart because as Proverbs 4 tells us, the heart is the wellspring of life. All of our life proceeds from what is going on in our heart. Therefore, whatever our heart is set on, our lives demonstrate what our heart is set on. Our hearts point to what we worship. Now, R.C. Sproul says, when we worship, that, that worshiping God, when we worship God, pleasing God is at the heart of worship. Pleasing God is at the, the heart of worship. And, and this is where worship extends beyond what goes on here for an hour and a half or whatever on Sunday mornings, where it's our lives. With our life and our actions, we desire to please God. Now, in the book of Revelation, there aren't a ton of specific directives for how we live our lives as worship, as far as what the actions of worship look like, at least not to the same extent as some of the other epistles that we see. You could go to Romans, 1 Corinthians, you could go to Galatians, full of, of directives, specific things that Christians ought to do as worship toward God. But throughout the entire book of Revelation, there is this undercurrent that's running it's this, this call to action, and it can be summarized in this. Remain faithful. 
In fact, if you go back to the beginning of Revelation, where John specifically addresses those seven churches, you, you can see this. In, a fee, in, in Ephesus, he says, he tells them, check your heart. Right? Go, go back to the wellspring. What is your heart set on? You've, you've abandoned your first love. Go back to what you first loved. In Smyrna, he says, you guys are being faithful. Keep being faithful, even if it takes you to the point of death. In Pergamum, he says, you guys, you haven't really been faithful, but you still have opportunity to repent and turn back and pursue faithfulness. In Thyatira, he tells them to hold fast to their faith. In Sardis, he says, wake up. You guys have been kind of drowsy and lazy. Wake up. Be strengthened. Remember who God is and what he has done. Repent of how you've abandoned him and have you turned from him. In Philadelphia, he says, endure patiently. Keep going and hold fast. In, in, in Laodicea, he tells them to be zealous. Right? Zealous, to, to be zealous is, is, is your heart's expression at living passionately. See, all of this that, that John says in saying, remain faithful, he's saying, guys, don't follow the culture. Don't follow the pattern of the world. Don't follow the passions of your flesh. Instead, follow God in everything. Follow God. Live a godly life as God directs us to live in Scripture. He says, walk by the Spirit. Now he borrows, we can say we go to Galatians 5 and borrow from the Apostle Paul where he says to walk in the Spirit, to, to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. See, that's what it looks like to live a godly life, that that fruit is being produced. That there's visible evidence in your life that those things are being cultivated. And those things don't just show up on Sunday mornings. Goodness, faithfulness, love, gentleness, self-control. That, that, that's all of life. That's life-encompassing. So John deems every part of our life as meant to be lived in worship toward God. And you know what that means, church? That means that we're gonna look different than the world outside of these walls. We're gonna have different values. We're gonna have a, a different worldview. We're gonna have a different pursuit of what it looks like to, to give our life to something. We're gonna live counterculturally. And the reality is that it is hard. It's so much harder to fight against the current than to flow with the current, is it not? It's, it's hard to listen to the news cycles and hear about different agendas that are being pushed as cultural culture veers further and further away from God and his word. And you, honestly, as Christians, I feel this. It's like, 
it's just so hard to keep fighting for what is good and beautiful and true. It's so hard. And if we want to live counterculturally and point to Jesus and his goodness and his beauty and his truth in all of our life, we cannot do this alone. You can't. You try to live counterculturally as like an island, your own person, you're going to fizzle out and burn up. Think, of, think about your fitness or health goals. If we're trying to achieve our fitness goals on our own, like I'll just do whatever fits with my schedule. I don't really have any sort of accountability or help or encouragement from anybody else or a community. You're, unless you have incredible willpower, you'll get fatigued. Your, wor- your, your workout regimen will slowly decrease. Your, your desire to eat healthy and to, to pursue a, a, a balanced diet will start to trickle out and you start adding junk food in. Right? We need community in order to pursue faithfulness. This is why we put a priority at Sacred City Church on missional communities. Missional communities, living life in real, authentic, and meaningful community allows us to encourage one another to fight the good fight of faith together, to press on in faithfulness, and to live godly lives together. Because it tells us you're not alone you, you have help, even in those moments where you stumble and fall and maybe you've veered away from faithfulness. You have people who can remind you of the gospel. And, and it's not just that we, as a church, put a priority on missional community and this type of community. Jesus puts a priority on living in meaningful community. The the illustration that gets used repeatedly in the, in the New Testament is that of a body. A, bo- a body can't function if it's just a finger or a leg or a nose. J- Jesus looks at the church and says, you guys are a body. You're working together in sync with one another. You're, you're counting on one another to pursue the end of godly living and so we need each other. This is the action. This is the action of worship. That we live godly lives in community. And you'll notice in, in verse 17 where it's the spirit and the bride say. There's this singularity in in the, the word bride. It's not the spirit and the brides representing a bunch of individual Christians. It's the spirit and the bride. It's, it's the church body come together, knit together as one. And as Jesus puts us in community that's radically committed to living godly lives and living a faithful life, He gives us the action of worship. He also gives us the language of worship. 
See, the action is living the godly lives. The, the language here is a word of invitation. If you look at verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, this is the language of worship. It's an invitation to to come. It's saying that I have found what is supremely good and beautiful and true. I have found that. And listen, you can get in on this too. Come. Come taste. Come drink. I think it's easy for the church to get confused about what this language of worship entails. I think it's really easy for the church to say, all right, if we just invite, right, we say come. The church kind of becomes passive in the invitation. We put up a sign I think this is really easy. I think that this is our tendency. I'm not just saying this about churches. I'm saying, like, this is our general drifting as a church. It's easy for us to put up a sign somewhere in our city and say, hey, guys, we're here. If anybody wants to come, we're over here. Now, I don't have anything against signage. We've got signs on our building, right? We want, we want people to know, hey, we're here. But if that's all we're doing, we miss the scope of what it means to use the language of worship in come. Now think about this for a minute. Did Jesus sit up in heaven, put out a sign, and say, if anybody wants to come on up here, you're welcome to? No. That wasn't the scope of Jesus' ministry. He didn't just say, hey, you're welcome to come if you want to, I guess. Jesus left heaven on a search and rescue mission. See, Jesus' invitation wasn't just an invitation for people to come in first. Jesus went after them and then offered the invitation. Right? He, he sought us out. Now, think, I think one of the best examples of the thoroughness of how Jesus sought us out is represented in when you lose your TV remote control. You lose your TV remote control, it's like, pause the entire world here for a moment. I've got to find this thing. You're on your hands and knees. You're flipping over the couch cushions. Like, we're looking through our kid's toy box. Where is this remote? We once lost our Apple TV remote for like nine months, and it was the worst nine months of my life. See, that's the intensity in which Jesus pursues us in order to give that invitation to come. Jesus came to us first to deliver that invitation. That it was Jesus who stepped out with initiative with that language. And so what that tells us, that even the language of worship invokes action. 
See, Jesus acted to make the goodness and the beauty and the truth of God made non-ignorable to us. He came to this world to show us what God was like, to demonstrate his mercy and his kindness, his patience. And as people who have accepted the invitation, people who are there drinking water without price, so now we live on mission to making the goodness and the beauty and the truth of Jesus non-ignorable that we become pursuing inviters. We don't just throw out an invitation. You know, we don't put up a sign. No, we're, we're pursuing people so we can extend a heartfelt and sincere invitation that we really want you to come. Now, in the most basic expression of this, of being pursuing inviters, I think is just inviting people to church. It's, it's, it's offering an invitation for people to come to church on Sunday morning to see what God's doing here. It's offering an invitation for people to step into missional community and experience what it's like for ordinary Christians to live all of their life as worship to Jesus. And so so that's, that's, that's part of it. We want to provide people the opportunity to step into these places and, and hear the gospel. But again, it's so much more than that. See, what Jesus is calling us to here is living in community and on mission. And living on mission means making space for people at our dinner table who don't belong there. It means being hospitable to people who have different worldviews than we do, who have different ideas about what, what goodness and beauty and truth are. It means being generous with our time, you realize, like, one of the most impactful things that you can do, we're a society that is obsessed with time. You realize, like, all of our life is broken down in these segments of time of what, what needs to happen at this time. It's lunchtime. We eat here now. But what would, what would happen, what kind of an impact would you make if you were generous with your time? If you, if you took the time that you were going to devote to something else and said, you know what, I'd, I'd like for you to have this time right now. I want to give my ear to you. I want to hear what's going on with you so you can listen to people's problems. You can hear what people are struggling with, whether that's at, the, at, at work or at the gym over your lunch break. It means helping somebody with a project, making a meal, Sharing experiences together, having play dates. It's, it's the action of doing whatever it takes. Actually, in fact, it doesn't really matter what it is you do. It's, it's finding something to do as a missional outlet so that you could find the opportunities that Jesus is providing his church to step into real life with real people and offer them their real life problems, a solution to their real life problems in Jesus. It's an opportunity to offer biblical advice that isn't just advicey. Right? The church is pretty good at giving advice. Well, this is what you should do. But offering biblical advice and counsel in a way that doesn't just tell somebody what to do, but tells them what Jesus has already done. 
Now, one of the things that, as we live as missionaries, what we're going to encounter is people, people experiencing brokenness in relationships. Like pe- people who have been betrayed or hurt by friends or family or coworkers. Right? And, and, and we talked about this last week a little bit with the heart wounds, like hearing, being able to hear what it is that they're struggling with. And instead of saying, oh, you need to just cut that person out of your life. Well, here's what I know about betrayal. I've turned my back on Jesus a lot. I've said one thing about Jesus and then done a different thing often in my life. And I know that Jesus, he doesn't hold that against me. He doesn't dangle it over my head and try to manipulate me into being a better person. He, he offers me forgiveness. And when you've experienced the forgiveness that Jesus offers you, right, and you understand the scope and the magnitude of the sin in which Jesus forgives you of whatever your friend has done to you seems piddly in comparison. See, see that's, that's one way that we point to Jesus, even in the brokenness and the real-life examples of where people are, are struggling. And I can, I always feel this. I feel this internally, too, but, but it's like, oh, Pastor Sam, you, you have no idea. That's so hard for me. It's so hard for me to talk like that. It's so hard for me to, to, to point to Jesus in that way. Listen, we're not going for some perfect poetic sort of presentation of the gospel. Some, God takes our, our imperfect and sometimes sloppy presentations of Jesus and he can use them in powerful ways. And so you don't need to be afraid of having the right words to say God will give you those words. And if it feels weird, it's only because you make it weird. Like, you're psyching yourself out when it comes to telling people about Jesus. Now you naturally talk about the things you love, right? You get moms together, and all they're talking about is their kids. You get a bunch of guys together, talking about their favorite sports team. You have no problem talking about your favorite restaurant or, or the, the app that's changed your life. If this is true about these sort of tertiary things, how much more so should it be true that we're talking about God and who he is and what he has done for us? So John lays out, here, here, here's the action, whole life, lived faithfully toward God. Here, here, here's the language, come. It's an invitation and when we lay it out like this, this seems like a pretty invasive way to worship. Like we're, we're clearly talking about more than just Sunday mornings here. We're talking about entirety of your life, living godly. We're talking about giving ourselves to community, doing all of that stuff in the midst of community, living on mission. Now, anything less than that isn't the worship that God intends for us to give. See, the reason why our worship must be our whole life 
is because Jesus laid down his whole life for us. See, Jesus knew what we had forgotten. Jesus knew that God was supremely good and beautiful and true. And Jesus looked down from heaven and he saw us being misled by our sin. He saw the brokenness. He saw the darkness as our sin led us to a false version of beauty and goodness and truth. In fact, it's, it's the antithesis of those things. That our sin doesn't lead us to goodness, it leads us to wretchedness. Our sin doesn't lead us to beauty, it leads us to ugliness. Our, our sin doesn't lead us to truth, it leads us to deception. And Jesus saw where we were headed, and so Jesus got up on the cross in our place. And as he was standing there on the, on the cross, it's as if he's giving us a visual representation of where this sin, where this misguided worship will lead us to. And on that cross, we see the ugliness, the brutality of sin. On that cross, we see the wickedness of evil. On the cross, we see the poison of lies that left Jesus up there disfigured and ugly. And this is where the paradox is. In Jesus becoming ugly, he demonstrates God's beauty. Because Jesus gets up on that cross and proves the ultimate goodness, the ultimate beauty, the ultimate truth of God so that we don't have to get on that cross ourselves. Jesus was faithful to God even to the very end, even when things got dark for him. He was faithful to God living his whole life as worship, as always offering the invitation of Come. And so he takes us who, who are broken and, and we've got this, we're marred by sin. There's this ugliness in our own hearts. If you can really look in at the, the core of your heart and you can see the darkness that's in there. And Jesus, what he did on the cross was so powerful. The goodness and the beauty and the truth of God was so powerful in the demonstration that, that Jesus starts working to redeem anyone who would put their faith on him. That he takes us and he starts to make us good and beautiful and true. And what Revelation shows us here is, is the scope and the magnitude. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. It's not just that Jesus went and showed us God's goodness and his mercy and his kindness. It's not just those things. It's that the scope and breadth is so large that Jesus is actually working to completely restore and renew all of creation. That there will be one day where all we know is goodness and beauty and truth in the new heavens and new earth. And as we behold the beauty and the goodness of truth of God that we see in Jesus Christ, what happens is we become like him. And becoming like Jesus and seeing what he's done and becoming like Jesus, we become wholehearted life worshipers. 
And then something else happens. As God is working to transform us, as he's projecting his goodness and beauties and truth, he's stirring up a longing deep inside our hearts. A a longing for the day when Jesus says that he's going to come back and bring recompense. He's going to restore everything. Anything that had emptied the bank account of creation, he's going to fill it up to the brim. Anyone who remains faithful and worships, Jesus is going to make all things right. And this longing that we have, it it, it flips this word, come, right? Come is an invitation. Come to to Jesus. Come and see what he's done for us. But it's also a new language for us. As worshipers, we say, come, Lord Jesus, that's the way that, that Paul or John ends this book. He's, Jesus tells him, surely I am coming soon. And, and John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And as worshipers of Jesus, when we see his goodness, his beauty, his truth, the scope and breadth of what he's doing, not just in forgiving us our sins, but giving us a completely new life, we can't help but say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has demonstrated perfectly what it looks like for for us to live all of life as worship. And while we fail, while we mess up, while our worship can be inconsistent, he has paid the price for our sins. Our transgressions have been placed upon him. And he offers us forgiveness and a new life, a life that's devoted to what is true and beautiful and good. And Father, I pray that you would increase in us a hunger for beauty and goodness and truth. Would you increase that desire that that, that just like John, we would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because the world around us is falling apart. There's brokenness. And we need you more than anything. Father, as we come to this table, would you, would you help us sink our hearts and our minds in the future of the day where, where we don't break bread and drink wine here in this place, but the day where we break bread and drink wine in the new heavens, new earth, where we are with you, where all things have been made right where we can see that Jesus has won, that he is worthy of all worship for now and forevermore. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.